Hello, and welcome to the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Before we go any deeper, I thought I'd take a moment to let you know where we're heading. Today, we dive into one of the stories that Will White sent to his mailing list subscribers at some point in the last few years. All of these short stories are tucked away inside one or another of his worlds. Maybe Cradle, possibly Elder Empire, but probably Traveler's Gate. If you have never heard of those worlds before, then you do not have the training to extract full meaning from this journey. You may continue if you wish, but you may not reach true enlightenment. You'll know you were fully prepared for the story if we emerge from this podcast and you suddenly begin levitating and or glowing. Now, tighten the straps on your pack and raise your torch high, because we're delving into places unknown. Don't worry, most of you will probably make it out alive. A Sword Unclean Kal Itai stopped, sword in hand, and let his spirit sink into the earth. Vital aura shaped itself into yellow, jagged lines down here, like frozen golden lightning that connected all stone in a network of veins. Looking into the ground with his soul felt like peering over a vast spiderweb of solid yellow power, with the lines growing closer and denser as they went deeper. At the bottom of the world, rumor had it, there was a ball of pure earth aura miles across, the place where mountains were born. But he didn't need to go that deep. He skimmed the surface, sensing the aura, feeling it resonate with his path of rushing stone. When he reached the thief's location, he struck. His path's lone ruler technique, the roots of stone, directed aura to bind your feet to the ground. Your footing would become as sturdy as bedrock until no sacred artist could push you from your stance. Each of your steps would shake the ground like an avalanche and a team of horses couldn't budge you an inch. But when you focused that technique on someone else, someone with no aspect of earth in their madra, someone with no training in such skills, then you might as well have tied a boulder to each of their feet. He didn't use the technique in such a way often because, like all ruler techniques, it was difficult and time-consuming to direct and control. Vital aura was the power of the world, and it responded only grudgingly. If the thief had moved a few steps to one side or the other, his technique would never have taken hold. But the thief was hiding, crouched behind a bush, too scared to even twitch. Lines of yellow aura snaked up around him, tying him to the ground, and he yelped. Itai couldn't see the man, but he could feel the technique settling in, the other man struggling against the weight of the earth itself. Kal Itai strode over calmly, letting his sword dangle from one hand. The thief was a scrawny man, covered in dirt, teeth bared like a weasel's. His gold sign was a claw sticking out of his elbow, Perhaps he had practiced a path of life or of bone. Today, that path came to an end. The thief had spent the last few weeks stealing sacred herbs from the hills around the local village. As the herbs could be refined into medicine beneficial to the sacred arts, they made up the better part of the taxes that the village paid to the nearby clan. If their payment came up short, they would have to answer to the clan. At first, when they weren't worried, they had offered little to outside sacred artists for the recovery of this thief, certainly nothing to attract Kali Tai's attention. But as their plight had become more desperate, they had eventually offered something that drew him like a bird to seed. He'd come into the village only this morning, made brief conversation with his contact, and tracked down the thief.
it was looking to be the most profitable few hours of Itai's life. The thief bared his teeth and began to speak, but he found it hard to get the words past Itai's blade in his throat. Spilled blood left a delicate red mist drifting into the air. In Itai's spiritual sight, a black shadow flickering past as the nearby aura briefly took on the tinge of death. Definitely a lethal strike. Itai wiped his blade on the long grass, waiting for the body to stop twitching, even as the bushes around him rustled. His contact in the village stormed up, clutching an iron-banded club in one hand and wearing a look of revulsion. We're not in position, the villager hissed. Either he'd gotten his name from his gold sign, four black eyes across his forehead, blinking in a disturbing rhythm, or he'd followed the path because of his name. Kal Itai met the man's natural eyes, as he suspected the other two pairs might not function properly. Stop the thief, you said. I did. From the thief's corpse, a yellow-brown remnant of bones and claws pushed its way up. Like most remnants, it looked unreal, a deformed, cobbled-together skeleton assembled from paint and plaster, like an exaggerated sketch brought to life. Its jaw jutted out, yellowed fangs sticking up in crazy directions, and it hunched with a bent spine. Its fingers were stretched to inhuman lengths, sharpened to claws at the end. Curved stingers pointed out from its elbow joints, each longer than the rest of the arm. Six Eyes wasn't paying attention to him. Close the circle, he shouted into the woods. A woman scurried out from a nearby tree, antennae twitching as she threw down scripted tile after scripted tile. They were closing a circle to prevent the remnant from escaping. Not much point to that. Even if it did escape, it would likely only run into the wild. And there were surely no soulsmiths in this village to take advantage of any valuable parts. But it wouldn't get a chance to run. He'd stop it here. He whipped his sword up, but the remnant was quicker than the human it had once been. It dodged backwards, let out a sound like a sheet being torn in half, and then bolted for the woods. Itai hadn't expected that, though when you dealt with remnants, it was difficult to anticipate anything. He raised his left hand. This hand was twice as large as his right, covered in a permanent gauntlet of yellow-tinged rock, the gold sign for the path of rushing stone. He fed Madra into it, gathering it into a striker technique until a ball of slowly revolving yellow Madra rested against his palm. He released it, and the meteor hammer technique burst forward with enough force to throw his palm backward. It started off relatively slow, trotting into the woods after the remnant, but as it moved, it picked up speed, flying and spinning faster and faster. It gathered aura from the earth as it went, until it went from the size of an orange to a melon. The technique had a limited effective range, as it would gather aura to become larger and faster until it eventually unraveled. But the remnant was close. It struck the skeletal spirit on the shoulder. Not the back, as he'd intended, the shoulder. Bone Madra sprayed off in chips, and the remnant was launched forward, spinning in the air. Its body swept past the woman with the antennae, who ducked and clapped hands to her hair instead of dropping the last tile. When the remnant tumbled to the ground, it loped into the distance on its three functioning limbs. There was no script to contain it, nothing to come back for, and it didn't so much as glance back as it ran into the woods. Kal Itai watched it go for a moment. 
The spirit had been lucky to escape his technique, which tweaked his pride a bit, but he couldn't waste his time hunting down a low-gold remnant. He turned to Six Eyes. The thief is dead, he said. Nothing more. All six of the man's eyes widened. This, you, honorable High Gold, please do not play tricks on me. You let the remnant escape. How can we pick herbs in peace, knowing that a creature lurks in the woods, threatening our workers? The thief may not have gained our taxes, but we have lost them nonetheless. Kal Itai reached into his pocket, removing a wooden chit the size of his palm. It had only a few characters on it, but they spelled enough. Stop the thief, it said. Reward, an heirloom sword of blood and death. Stop the thief, Itai read aloud. He pointed to the blood-stained body on the ground. The thief is stopped. Understand, we cannot crack open the sanctum of our ancestors for this. Our village is still in danger. Three blood origin leaves. That's the best we can. Itai seized the man by the throat with his stone-gauntleted hand. Six Eyes Madra churned under his rocky fingers, rotating according to whatever the man's path was, but Itai was enforced with the strength of the rushing stone. His fingers closed, and Six Eyes' face reddened. I will have what I am due, he said. More villagers had revealed themselves at this point, finally emerging from the woods around Itai and Six Eyes. Kal Itai didn't move his eyes, but his spirit rippled out, sensing their souls all at once. This was the roughest and least accurate sort of probe, but it gave him an idea of their power. They were low golds at best, even a few jades who must have put no effort at all into their paths. Were they trained, coordinated, and armed? They may have posed a threat even to Kal Itai but they were frightened, armed with sticks and clubs, and the closest they had come to seeing real martial skills was the annual puppet theater. He could tear through them like a sword through dry leaves. Not that he would. He wasn't a murderer, after all. His hand opened, and he released a gasping six eyes. Without a word, Itai turned and began jogging to the village. At first, the villagers followed him, they used whatever movement techniques suited them, flitting through the trees or blasting over the ground. Some of them even overtook him. He'd bet they didn't even know why they were following him. Some of them shouted for him to talk. Six eyes called that they could negotiate, but none of them closed the gap. They were too scared to get close to him. And soon, they wouldn't be able to. Itai's enforcer technique filled him with the steady strength of the earth. It started weak, but slowly gathered in his limbs as he cycled Madra. Yellow Madra seeped throughout his body, and he grew faster and faster, his body heavier and heavier. Soon, his feet sunk an inch into the soil every time they touched down, and when he stepped on a log, he crushed it to splinters. By then, he covered ten feet in a blur with every step. Even the fastest of the villagers fell behind him then, the woods closing around them. Most rushing stone techniques gathered power until they reached critical mass, after which they could no longer be sustained and fell apart. This was no different. By the time his madra seeped away, leaving him weakened and panting, covered in a sheen of sweat, he'd reached the village far ahead of his pursuers. The village itself was only a few dozen houses, but it was clean and organized in an even grid. Every house had walls of cheap wood and a roof of tight bundled grass, 
but they were also all identical, arranged in neat rows. The paths between houses were carpeted in reeds, in a quaint echo of paving stones. The whole aesthetic was quiet, ordered, and isolated, and that impact extended into the vital aura. It was filled with floating tendrils of vivid green as the power of life wove through each of the houses. They must follow paths of life here and had designed the location to make it easier to cycle. It was the sort of place he wouldn't mind settling down someday. Once his purpose was complete. When he'd come the first time to negotiate with Six Eyes, he'd quickly scanned the area to find out if they could really honor the reward they'd promised. He'd had his doubts at first. If a sword of blood and death was anywhere in a village like this, it would stand out like a red stain in the snow. To his surprise, a quick sweep of his spirit had revealed something pulsing in the earth far beneath the reed mats like a black heart under healthy skin. Even if the sword wasn't there, something deadly was, which was all he needed. A handful of women carrying baskets stared at him, murmuring to one another. They didn't seem terribly alarmed as he walked straight as an arrow to the far edge of town and the only house out of place with the others. This one had a lock. It wasn't anything serious. The door was made of a single layer of wood, for one thing, which any sacred artist found slightly more of an obstacle than a wisp of cloud. And the lock itself was a wooden box the size of two spread hands with a glaring demon carved into it. This was a symbol meant to keep people away with the simple knowledge that they shouldn't enter. He folded his arms and waited. He could walk straight through the door and down to what he wanted, but he was a reasonable man. He dashed ahead just to show these low golds and jades what a real sacred artist was capable of, that he wasn't to be taken advantage of just because he hadn't taken advantage of them. Now that he'd shown who held the better hand, he could afford to give Six Eyes a little face back, give them the chance to do the right thing. But one way or another, he would have what he was due, what he needed. Six Eyes and the others crashed through the woods just as Itai got his own breath back. Six Eyes was swimming in sweat, staggering a little with each step, but he held his hands out in supplication. Please, Honorable Highgold, he began, taking gulps of air with each word. Please, this was the sanctum of our ancestors, where they practiced a mighty path. Over the generations, we have lost their secrets and settled for our own simple path, so every one of their relics is cherished. We offered the weapon as a reward, only as a final resort. And with the way things have turned out, well, I'm sure we can come to terms that satisfy you. Let us discuss it, shall we? Over tea. Itai had tried, and the heavens themselves would bear witness to that. I will have what I am owed. His stone fist smashed into the door, blasting it to splinters. It opened not onto another home, but onto a staircase leading down into the darkness. The stench of blood was suffocating, and the darkness pressed against his skin as though it might stain him with ink. Some of the villagers shouted as Itai took the first step. Six eyes took a step forward, but only one sacred artist acted. Itai wasn't watching her, but he felt her in his spirit as she conjured up a floating river of some liquid that glowed vibrant green in his senses. It rushed like a dragon at his back, intended perhaps to push him down the stairs to injury. He reached to the aura beneath his feet, seeking roots of stone. 
Her striker technique slammed against his back, threatening to force him forward, but as the breaths passed, the earth aura bound him more and more securely to the stone steps. By the time her dragon of water reached its end, he couldn't have been dislodged by a real river. It wasn't truly water, but rather madra of water and some other more exotic aspect. Life, perhaps, twisted into an attack. He could feel it tearing at something inside him, seeping away something important to his very being. His life, he supposed. He wasn't familiar enough with her path's techniques to say for sure. Whatever the intended effect, it wasn't very strong. His spirit protected him, so much stronger than hers that she may as well have tried to erode a mountain with a cupful of water. Such was the gap between realms of advancement. Turning casually, he tossed a meteor hammer technique behind him. The yellow ball started off drifting forward deceptively slowly, gaining speed and power as it revolved, but he didn't watch. He walked down into the darkness. His technique crashed into something, leading to a scream, but he didn't so much as look back. The steps spiraled as they went down, until eventually he had to burn rushing stone madra simply to see. He exuded a soft, yellow light, worse than lighting a candle, but still barely enough to make out his surroundings. Before reaching the bottom, he sealed off his spiritual senses. The blood and death were so thick down here that he shivered constantly, his fingers shaking in spite of himself. It was as though he walked through a battle in a graveyard. The number of deaths here must have been shocking. The stairs finally opened up into a small room, square, even smaller than the house above. The centerpiece was a rough stone table with a smooth depression in the middle, which had been absolutely saturated in blood, to the point that he doubted any of the original earth aura remained. He was glad he'd had the foresight to close off his senses, or he may have been driven mad simply by the bloodthirst lingering in the atmosphere. Blobs of a transparent, jelly-like substance congealed in the corners, slowly running down the walls, and his heart leapt when he saw them. He'd only heard rumors of such spirits, pseudo-remnants that formed when vital aura reached a high enough concentration. Only the highest level training rooms could produce such spirits, and even then they usually funneled vital aura into a script to keep the partial remnants from forming. Aura used to power a script couldn't affect the world. These creatures hadn't condensed enough to harm him, but they were literally made from the power of blood and death. He stayed clear. Besides, there was more to occupy his attention. Besides the natural spirits and the table, there were other things in the room, enough treasure to arm a small sect. His stone hand clenched as he saw row upon row of sealed clay jars sitting on a shelf marked with the characters for deadly poison. They were so potent they battered against his closed senses. An underlord on a venom path would trade his firstborn son for a single one of those jars. Mounted on the wall, a double-bladed axe glowed sullen red in the darkness. The red light undulated and flexed until he realized that one of the natural spirits had actually formed around the weapon. Even the highest grade of weapons in his old sect's armory weren't so powerful. A blood-red mirror waited on another wall, its surface reflecting the mirror in a scarlet hue. He steered away from that one. Beside a few pill cases, a pile of hooks, and a couple of sealed boxes that he suspected contained constructs, he finally saw what he was looking for, 
a four-foot-long black box with a simple latch. He lifted the lid and looked upon his prize, a straight-bladed sword, sharp on both sides, that rippled red and black even in the earthen-yellow light he emitted from his body. Tight scripts spidered up one side of the blade and down the other, though the runes seemed to change depending on whether the sword was more black at that moment or more red. A white tassel tangled from its pommel, and he ran his hands along that tassel, feeling it run over his fingers before he lifted the blade in his hands. He had been forced to watch as the Black Sky School devastated his sect, shattering their ancient fortress and plundering their treasures. He'd fought as long as he could, exhausting his spirit to its limit, but the path of rushing stone was not an especially destructive discipline. Their most deadly technique was like a glass hammer before the black sky. Their warriors were as sheep to wolves. Only the heavens knew why Kali'itai had been the one to survive. He'd known that revenge was only a fevered dream. Even if he did manage to kill one artist on the path of the black sky, the remnant would pull him apart. He'd lived each day only for the next, eating just to fuel his body, drinking to fall asleep, waking to take whatever jobs he could. Until this one. When he'd seen their reward, the possibility had been enough to get him here. Now the solution to his long problem was within his grasp. He almost couldn't believe it had been so easy, as though the heavens had sent them that wooden slip so that he could exact justice. He hefted the sword. With a weapon like this, its essence so deadly, he would fall upon the Black Sky School like a plague. They had no defense before this blade. At last, the spirits of his brother and sister disciples would be able to continue their journeys in peace. He could have taken most everything in the room. There wasn't so much that he couldn't fit a fortune on his person, and he was sure he could pack one of the boxes full. Picturing the agonized faces on the Black Sky disciples, he was tempted for a moment. But in the end, he wasn't a thief. He would take what he was owed and not a single scale more. He carried the sword of black and red up to the stairs, up to the rectangle of daylight that was the still open door, past the fresh bloodstain he'd left on the stairs where he'd attacked the villager woman. She lay on the ground just outside, panting and clutching a bleeding arm, even as Six Eyes and the other locals stood around her. When they felt Itai coming up the stairs, they retreated, dragging her backwards. Six eyes looked from the sword in Itai's hand to the bleeding woman on the ground, then up to Itai's face. His expression was full of panic. Please, Honorable Heigold, take your weapon and leave. Look what you're doing. Itai glanced around to see whatever it was he was doing, but noticed nothing. After a moment, he realized that he'd sealed off his soul and looked at the world through his spiritual senses. It was like being splattered in the face with rotten blood. Shadowed red aura seeped out of the sealed vault, darkening thatch, curling the reed mats, and even tainting the bright yellow of the earth below with red and black. The bright green life aura had started to turn brown and dead already. Even Itai was surprised with the progress. That fast? He hadn't broken a scripted seal meant to restrain deadly powers, just a door and a lock, a strangely intricate, symbolic lock. Not for the first time, Itai wished he were a more skilled scripter. 
Someone with anything more than a basic education in scripting could redirect this aura, sealing it or grounding it somewhere harmless. He could only shake his head. Had you given me what I was owed, he began, but Six Eyes cut him off with a desperate squeal like an angry pig. Had you not killed the thief, he said, stabbing a finger into the forest. Another stain blackened the aura in that direction, a spreading infection of blood and death. It fed on the corruption here, he could tell, one flame lending heat to another. Carrion birds had already risen from the woods, gathering over the village where they sensed the aura of prey. Perhaps some of them were sacred beasts, but most of them would be simple scavengers. They wheeled overhead, cawing. Even the air seemed a little darker, as though the sun had to strain harder to reach the ground. The Sun Hand School is not far from here, Itai suggested. Hire one of them. With their light and life arts, they could restore a place like this to balance in only a day or two. In the end, whether they listened to him or not was their concern. He'd done his job and gotten paid. Cleaning up afterward was their responsibility. He started off into the trees, examining his new sword as he walked. It interacted strangely with the red and black aura seeping out of the tomb. The vital aura seemed to feed into it and then spray back out as though the sword were cycling. What ultimate effect that would have, he couldn't say. But here it seemed to spread the dark aura over a wider area. Well, once you'd splashed buckets of mud all over someone's house, why worry about tracking a little more inside? He headed into the trees, but something hit him like an arrowhead on the crown of his skull. Pain blinded him as though he'd been smashed with a brick, and he roared, slashing his sword into the sky on reflex. A heavy black bird cawed at him, avoiding the tip of his weapon and winging its way back into the sky. Another swooped down on one of the jades in the crowd around him, spilling a trickle of blood. The aura grew a little stronger, and the villagers shouted as one, hefting their simple weapons. More and more black birds fell on them, and the cries of the villagers went from fearful to angry. One man leaped twenty feet into the air and clubbed a black bird out of the air, sending it plummeting to the ground where it hit in a splatter of blood and feathers. Hitai, still angered by the pain, hefted his sword and waited. The birds, already sensitive to blood and death by virtue of their diet, must have been crazed by the dark aura. Well, they were moths rushing headlong into a fire. Their blood would only make the aura stronger, which would in turn affect and enrage the humans who would smash the birds to paste, starting with whichever beast attacked Itai next. A bird with a particularly impressive wingspan looped around, eyeing him with orbs of glittering black. It circled once, examining him. Then it dove. To train his enforcer technique, Itai had once been forced to strike darts in flight before they hit him. The missiles started slow and grew faster with each dart until by the end he was slapping blurs of steel from the air with his stone palm. Compared to that exercise, the bird may as well have been standing still. His sword rippled in a blur of red and black and the bird fell to pieces. In the physical world, at least. To his spiritual senses, the creature exploded. Deep, potent red and a cloud of shadowy black burst out of the bird's skin upon contact with the blade. It was the spark that set the tinder ablaze. 
Every tendril of blood and death flared to deadly life all at once, echoed all around the village, like the sanctum had vomited forth a river of oil, and he'd just dropped the torch. The aura rippled toward him in a wave, attracted to the blood that flowed beneath his skin, but it parted around the sword like a river around a boulder. He closed off his senses and took a deep breath, unscathed. Everyone else went insane. A woman went from swiping a rake at birds to tearing a dead one apart with her teeth. Next to her, a man made a claw of his fingers and a tree bent in response to his sacred arts, its branches slapping another man aside. Everywhere people clubbed or scratched or beat each other. Birds started ripping into each other in the air, raining blood and feathers down on the people below. With one of his black gold sign eyes gone and a bloody scratch, Six Eyes stumbled toward Itai, club in his hand. He shrieked in incoherent rage and stumbled forward, forging green ropes of his madra and lashing them to nearby houses, using them to pull himself to Itai even faster. After a moment of shock, Itai calmed himself. Despite its shortcomings, he loved his path, and the rushing stone encouraged a heart as implacable as a mountain's face. He channeled the remaining untainted earth aura into roots of stone. Six eyes crashed into him using his body as a projectile, his bloody smile savage. Itai staggered back, his roots dissipating. So he channeled Madra into his rocky fist, smashing it into six eyes. The man raised a hand to block, heedless of the fact that his bones cracked until his forearm bent like a bow under the strike. He grinned again, blood running between his teeth, and green tendrils arose from the ground to seize Itai around the waist. Kal Itai swept his sword, spilling Six Eyes' blood to the ground. Another explosion of aura, another shriek of the crowd, and this time every villager had hurled themselves in his direction. He cycled his madra faster than ever in his life, throwing his core wide open and hurling balls of rock-solid madra with one hand while he struck with the deadly sword in his right. He was clubbed, cut, scraped, and bitten more times than he could count, but after that first seemingly endless surge of violence, the last body fell away. He stood, panting and alone, soaked in a sea of blood and death. Reckless, violent joy surged in his heart. It was the pure rush of survival, of knowing that he lived and that he had in his hand the method of his vengeance. He turned on his heel to stumble into the forest, but he stopped when he saw a lone figure. It was a remnant, yellowish-white and ambling along with an uneven gait. Its spine was bent, its jaw jutting and filled with fangs, its fingers clawed and strangely elongated. Spikes ran from each elbow. The spirit stood between him and freedom, scraping at the ground like a ram preparing to charge. Then it raised its bony, misshapen head and let out a sound like the sky itself tearing in half. And into the ocean of blood and death, every remnant in the village rose. Any other time, perhaps they would have pursued a dozen different goals, fading into the forest, spending their madra on tending a single growing flower, standing in one place for days, abducting children for the pure madra, gathering in places of pure aura concentration. Remnants had a few behaviors in common, but they were largely mercurial beings. These, though, acted as one. 
driven wild by the darkening aura, they sniffed, snorted, and pawed the air. Together, they turned their heads toward Kali Tai, to the sword in his hand, which called to their newfound bloodlust, to the blood in his veins, which echoed the deadly aura, to his dwindling core, which called to them as weakened prey calls to any predator. Without a pause, they struck. Congratulations, you've survived the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Today's story was A Sword Unclean by Will White, read by Travis Baldry. The next episode will be available when the sacred wind blows down from the mountain that time forgot, which usually takes about a week. Until that time, remember, an apple a day keeps the apple ghost away.